0: In today's episode of the Sixers Beat Rich, and I talk to Jake Fisher, a longtime friend, former Liberty Ballers colleague, current NBA reporter for Bleacher Report, and author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever. The book obviously heavily focuses on the 76ers and the process, given their prominence in this conversation, but also discusses rebuilds from the Boston Celtics, Phoenix Suns, Sacramento Kings, and Milwaukee Bucks, while putting all of that in the context of the changing league dynamics. This is an exceptionally well-researched, well-sourced book, which will shed a lot of light and provide significant context for the process, one of the most pivotal periods in franchise history. If you're a Sixers fan and interested in the process, go pick up a copy at triumphbooks.com, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. And if you're not following Jake on Twitter, give him a follow at Jake L. Fisher. That's F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek and Rich, joined by a longtime friend, former colleague, and current author of Built to Lose, How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever, Jake Fisher. How you doing, Jake? Doing well, guys. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. It's It's been a minute. You know, we haven't seen each other in person for, well, I mean, I haven't seen very many people in person for the last year. Yeah. Um, so it is great to catch up. Uh, this is a book that I have been waiting on for a little bit now. Uh, we met a little bit. While you were working on it uh, over in, we were both in Denver. Um, so we had a chance to catch up there. Probably yeah. the last time I've seen you in person, I believe,
1: right? I think so.
0: Yeah, I think so. Because the only event that was still going on between there and the lockdown would have been the All-Star Game. and
1: yeah. You know, actually, I did take a trip down to Philly for the Golden State game when Joel came out with the uh, Kobe number 24 jersey to talk okay. to D'Angelo. So I might have seen you guys then. Yeah, that was like a couple weeks before everything happened, and you know, if if you are looking to hang out in person, I, I gotta. Uh. I've been told I've been told to make my pitches at the top of of these things. Monday, May tenth, four to six p.m. at my friend's new bar, Liberty Grounds. Kyle Newbeck's going to be there with me. You guys can definitely come too. Um, I'm going to have a little distance book signing um, okay. for anybody who's got their copy already, and I'll have a like four on hand to buy not too many but uh yeah monday come through everybody
0: that's great love it uh, i I need an autograph on my copy as well and i'm fully vaxxed up and ready to go yeah i've Uh, got my i've got my two vaxxes, so that's why we're uh we're getting out in the streets and shaking hands and kissing babies coming up (laughs) i am not going to turn down very many offers to catch up or get drinks because i've been a shut-in for a year as as everyone else and it's been way too long but going back um you know, I think this is interesting for a number of reasons. First, it's great just to have you on because like I said, known you for what, seven, eight years now at this point. Former colleague, great guy. Um, we're both ano- old now, another member of, of old. the Liberty
2: Ballers twenty fourteen to sixteen yeah. class. What
0: a staff. Sure. A <laughs> dynasty. A Look, dynastic I, group. I might be a little bit biased, but I, I I agree with that. I agree with that.
1: Well, I tell people all the time, and this is a great like segue for this book, everything, like we would have access to the espination metrics all around the league right and the sixers were the worst team in the league by all accounts right the polarizing awful black eye on the league but we were ranking first or second pretty much every day in espination metrics among all the team blogs now a credit to how good we were i think not to not to pat ourselves on the back too much but also a credit to how interesting what the thing was we were covering
0: yeah the the team was a a a lightning rod uh it was very interesting, very debatable uh and that certainly helped us, but that is also what we're talking about in this book so let's take a step back again built to lose how the nBA's taking era changed the league forever what is the overall i guess arc of the story you're telling what is is the topic that you were discussing what is a general overview of the book i think the overall
1: arc starts with the fact that around two thousand and twelve you know, with Rob Hennigan leaving the Thunder after the Thunder's Finals appearance to Orlando, um, and then Hinkie being hired in Philly, and Ryan McDonough going to Phoenix, and Pete D'Alessandro in Sacramento, and David Griffin coming to power in Cleveland, you know it really wasn't just Sam. All these analytical minded executives coming to power kind of realized that it's not, it's not. We can't mess around anymore. Like the, the league is either about competing for a title or nothing. And the only way to do that is to have multiple All-Stars on your roster. And the most direct path to do so is by getting them at the top of the draft, like Oklahoma City did in that 2012, before they got to the 2012 Finals, and like the Heat, you know, they had Dwayne Wade, and then Dwayne Wade attracted LeBron and Chris Bosh. And coincidentally, while the Heat were running the league, and they were supposed to win not five, not six, not seven, all these execs thought, you know, the 2014 draft class is supposed to be the next great class since that 3 class that created LeBron and Wade and Bosh and Melo. And we might as well wait out that Heat dynasty. We'll get our next generation of guys, and by the time they're out, we'll be running the league too. And that's kind of what we've seen in Philly. I mean, Boston did it. People forget KG and Paul Pierce were traded to Brooklyn the same exact night. Hanky moved Drew to New Orleans for New Orleans. And um, I know Phoenix didn't think that um, they, Devin Booker would be the guy, but sure enough, you know, they get Devin, they get DeAndre Ayton and then they attract Chris Paul and now they're a one seed too. So the benefits were obvious and we're seeing them come to fruition
2: today. So Jake that, um, let, let's, let's go specifically to the Sixers on this point, because, you know, you touch a lot on this in the book and I think, you know, I I know our audience and kind of the general Sixers fan audience that they'd be interested in this, um, When you did reporting on how the Sixers landed on Brett Brown, that that is interesting to me just because, you know, before that 2014 draft class, there were a lot of losses that had to accumulate first. You have to make it through a season without hopefully things going haywire, which in the Sixers case, you know, they they were hit hit or miss on. But, you know, I guess they made it to the end of the end of the road. So what did you learn about kind of the the process on settling on Brett Brown and, and what the Sixers were looking for there?
1: Yeah, with the coaching search and with everything, you know, I talked to over 300 people for this book from players to you know, like Darius John. I didn't talk to Darius Johnson, but players like those guys. I talked to Tim Frazier, to Thaddeus Young, to, you know, GMs and execs all around the league. And it's just full of original reporting and storytelling that you're not going to find anywhere else. And part of that, I um, mean, a lot of the- some of these details were in your own book. Uh, tanking to the top, but I mean I really think I've got a full autopsy of Sam coming in and and rallying up this the makeshift start of his front office and just kind of canvassing everybody and saying, you know, who could be a potential head coach one day that's not a head coach right now, and how do we get in touch with them? And they created this expansive list from like Lloyd Pierce got on the list because Aaron Barzolay who was the team's first kind of analytical minded guy under this new uh, Josh Harris ownership at the time they were new, you know? Um, and he had overlap with Void Pierce in Memphis. And he was like, you know, this guy's got a shot one day, let's bring him in. And, and one thing that I thought was really interesting from talking to a couple of candidates, I talked to Jay Laranaga from Boston and Adrian Griffin who was a Bulls assistant at the time and a couple other people who didn't want to go on record, but just gave me some info. Um, Sam didn't use that opportunity to pick those guys' brains to get in, like inside secrets from other teams. That's what most execs do. They like make an expansive list, kind of to like extract info from rivals. But Sam wanted to get to know these guys just like they were draft prospects, which I thought was fascinating. And he would just walk up to people in summer league. Like he came up to Jay Larinaga in Orlando and said, "Hey, man, let's go to dinner." And they went to dinner for like five hours and just talked basketball and philosophy and whatnot. But the really curious thing to me was after he reached out to those people originally, he went dark. And that's from talking to head coaching candidates to scout candidates to like little lower level front office type people. That was kind of Sam's MO. He would just go off the grid and not really circle back to the point where and Laranaga, for example, was supposed to be Brad Stevens' number two in Boston. And throughout that summer, he kept looking and saying, hey, uh, Brad kept saying to Jay, like, are you going to be here? Are you going to Philly? Like, what's up? And Jay was like, I don't know. I guess maybe I'm out of the mix. And then sure enough, like late August, they wrapped it up and and they came up with their five man list. Um, They brought them all into New York and gave them this whole tour around the ownership group offices. And it finished up at um, Joshua Harris has this like palatial estate somewhere by Central Park in Manhattan. Of course he does. And uh, it was J- Jay Larinaga told me that like it's really impressive. This conference room like has a whole view of like all the trees in the park like brimming out over all the uh, high you know high rises and stuff. And they just talked. And, and what Adrian Griffin told me was that Sam was asking questions to kind of like prove to ownership that these guys could project into something, just like a player, just like Nerlens or Embiid or NCW or whoever was going to be like a three-year, two-year project. That's what he was selling his coaches on too. And one thing that was really interesting was that they were – ownership was not budging on a three-year contract. Like they needed to have a three-year deal. But Brett Brown, from what P.J. Carlissima told me, his former uh, Spurs friend of his, that Brett was like adamant about getting that fourth extra year. He didn't want to be Mark Jackson, right, where Steve Kerr comes in and takes over and leads that team to a finals run like in his very first year um and Brett by all accounts just emerged sorry for the long answer uh just emerged as the guy being that he has this extensive extensive player development history which if you guys want to hear more about some Spurs stories I could tell you that too but he 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 emerged as the guy who was going to be this nurturer this this kind of like kindergarten teacher almost, but at an NBA level. And that's why I think he really emerged amongst everybody else. He was considered by everyone in the league, the best player development guy. And that's what Sam needed. He needed somebody to turn these guys into stars.
2: That's so fascinating that he didn't even care about the other team's secrets. He's like, we're a few years away from from needing the other team's secrets. We got to we gotta just develop what uh, what we have from the ground up. Um so yeah, I mean they, they settle on Brett. Did um, I, I guess you know I know this is somewhat in the book, but you know th- that first year is probably something that we gloss over a little bit just because definitely you know they they won ten game or what was it ten yeah ten games two years later you know you had the the Fultz stuff but the, the first year was kind of the you know the holdovers from the Doug Collins era who had not been mm-hmm. moved on yet. And then they, you know, they they had their their younger players. They had MCW. They had Nerlens who did not play that first year. Um What uh you know, I, I guess that this is in the book, but I, I guess like big picture takeaways on what the holdovers kind of thought about being part of, you know, this this tanking experiment that the Sixers were undertaking after being kind of a averageish playoff team. Yeah, I think. At the beginning,
1: I mean, Spencer Hawes told me he was pretty psyched when Brett came in because Brett and a lot of, I mean, a lot of the players, just like traditionally throughout Doug Collins' career, a lot of them were over Doug, right? He just grates on people yeah. after a certain extent.
2: I was over And
1: yeah, and I mean, ownership was too, obviously. So when Brett came in, he was, you know, this youthful type energy and he pushed the guys to shoot threes, which Doug obviously wasn't. Willing to do so at the beginning, like Spencer Hawes was pumped, Thad was pumped. Um, But you're right, like that three zero start really took the city by storm. I remember we were kind of freaking out at Liberty Ballers, like what, <laughs> they're, what too are good.
0: You, they're too me. good. Stop too good. Yep.
1: And but Thad told me after that first game, like he 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 knew, like he knew they were bad. And Brett was throughout training camp and the preseason. He was reaching out to the guys and bringing them into his office and saying, like, you know, we're just trying to get better every day. We're not really here to do anything but that. Um, And that message was great for a guy like Khalif Wyatt. But you're right for Spencer and Thad and Evan, like they were all trying to get out and there's Funny details of like Evan Turner at a certain point, he found Brad Stevens in the, in the hallway between the locker rooms, both in TD garden and at the, at the center. Uh, and he was, cause he had some prior relationship with Brad Stevens and was like, Brad, please trade for me. Um, you know, Thad Young Remember, he put in this trade request, which I actually not to my own horn reported back then. Um, I remember that. And uh, he denied it publicly, but in the... I mean, we met up in a hotel in the city sometime, I guess, in the 2018 to 2020 range, and he was like, oh, yeah, I I requested it. I don't want to be there anymore. Um, And remember that that January, the early December, or the late December, early January, Disney on Ice road trip, dad was just putting up 30 and 29 and whatever. He was like, I'm definitely trying to audition to get out of here, um, but one thing that they were all super frustrated by Evan Turner, especially Sam didn't really take the time to develop relationships with them. And I think from his perspective and from what I've been told from people around the team was that it was, it was by design. Like he didn't want to get to know those guys too well and have his personal relationship impact his trade negotiations. Um, And that, that definitely rubbed the players the wrong way. Like Evan at one point, jokingly like saw Sam walk by the practice facility and was like, hey Sam, uh we play for the Sixers. And <laughs> that sounds Spencer like him. <laughs> Yeah. And Spencer's agent, Greg Lawrence at the time, was always calling Sam. And I remember he t- he told me as the deadline got closer, he felt like Sam really bit off more than he could chew. He was trying to just negotiate, negotiate, negotiate and get as much as he could Evan was getting – part of why Evan went to Brad was because he had heard that Chicago was interested in him after Derrick Rose got hurt again. But Sam was like, you got to give me two first-round picks for him, which again, the 2014 class was considered to be the next 2003 class. So who's giving up two first-round picks for Evan Turner? Like There was definitely frustration from those guys that they might not have gotten moved because he was holding out for so much. And that did happen with that, right? Like He was still around after the deadline because – Sam never got the first rounder that he wanted for him.
2: I I actually remember Hawes this is kind of an aside, but the the game before he got traded that year yes. was against the Cavs at home. I don't think I've ever seen like peop people are a little frustrated with how the Sixers are playing now while they're winning and not really trying. I don't think I've ever seen a player not trying a game like that in my life before. <laughs> yeah.
1: We, we we can curse on this, right?
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Let him Zach play. Do it. Zach Lowe famously called
1: it. Or said he didn't look like Spencer. It was a masterpiece of not giving a fuck. And when I got when I got Spencer on the phone and asked him, like, did you give a fuck? Um, he was like, no, absolutely not. And he told me what was funny. So that deadline day, Thursday, like always, Evan actually went to the facility and practiced. And Brett ran them ragged because they had given such a poor effort against Cleveland. And Spencer was like, nah, fuck it, I'm not even going. He woke up uh and went to i forgot the name of it um but some bar down i think in rittenhouse um or in, in old city somewhere where uh he used to always go he knew the bartender pretty well the bartender like wrapped him up in a hug and he was like crying he was like where are you gonna go man spencer was like i don't know but I, was like, I can't wait to get the hell out of here and another funny thing was at the trade right the week before that at the all-star break Spencer and Evan were supposed to go to Puerto Rico to meet girlfriends on vacation, but there was like inclement weather and their plane could never get out. So they ended up just like camping out in Spencer's house and like drinking all the alcohol he had left over. And um, at a certain point they had ran out of toilet paper and like their like mini quarantine they were doing. And that's what led to Evan finding this Barack Obama toilet paper stash that uh, Spencer Hawes had and posting on Instagram, which like, Made it seem like that's what Spencer used, but the real story is just that they got really drunk. They ran out of toilet paper and this one gag gift that Spencer had gotten around the holidays, because he is a Republican, uh, that was the only toilet paper they had left. So that's why Evan, you know, put it on Instagram.
0: <laughs> yeah, that is, um, yeah, Spencer Hawes was definitely quite the character.
3: Um, As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks. And we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TABASKETBALL and you'll get a one year subscription to The Athletic. Plus, up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TABASKETBALL. Make your first deposit of at least $10 place your first bet on any game claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to the athletic 21 plus to wager visit mgm.com for terms and conditions u.s promotional offers not available in dc nevada new york and ontario gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in colorado dc illinois indiana Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call one 877 8 hope or text hope Y. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada, 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts, one 800 bets off in Iowa, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at 1-866-531-2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, and Utah and other states where prohibited. Commercial offers not available in Nevada and in New York. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TAbasketball and you'll get a 1 year subscription to the Athletic Plus up to a $1000 first bet offer on your first wager.
0: All right, so let's uh let's let's move on a little bit to the the MB draft. Because obviously this was a a, a pivotal maybe might have changed the direction of the franchise. Just a little a, bit. A little bit. Th- a tiny bit. Um, what was your overall reporting on you know, what their thought process was going into it, what they were taking into consideration in that draft and how that was received maybe within the organization. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think across the league, the from the, from the get-go, it was Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker. But by January, everyone really realized that Joel was the prized and the crown jewel. And I mean, I remember that Iowa State game, Fred Hoiberg came out afterwards, the head coach then of the Cyclones, and was like, "This is the big, the greatest college player I've ever seen," <laughs> and Sam definitely agreed for sure. And he hurt his back, obviously that ended his ended his freshman year. Um, but you know, from there, he he had this Wasserman workout in California where he was dunking from like the foul line and tearing down the rim, and everyone was like, "Holy shit, this guy is really the guy." But he was only going to work out for Cleveland first, and you know, sure enough, Cavs officials to this day maintain that Joel broke his foot during that Cavs workout, which was remarkable, being that he was by far the best. It was the best workout that David Griffin had ever seen, and he, um, you know, he'd wowed all the all the Cavs brass, and they were going to be the guy. But then he got hurt, and Milwaukee didn't want to take him either. Um, because I mean, Mark Lazary on the record in my book said like, we wanted to make the postseason, and, um, they weren't going <laughs> to take amazing. Embiid because they wanted to make the playoffs. And I thought Jabari was ready made to be a scorer. <laughs> they even thought Jabari was going to be better than Giannis. Um, so, Ugh. and B just was right there at three. I mean, they, they covered Philly coveted him so much, um, that they were definitely trying to trade up for one with Cleveland to get that top pick. And, um, they just—they even considered at a certain point trading down to number five with Utah because Utah had five and 23 because Embiid only gave his medical records to the top three teams and then Boston down at six and the Lakers down at seven. So they kind of knew that those other teams would be very precarious to take a seven-foot-two guy whose freshman year ended with a broken back and now he had a broken foot without getting his medical information. But at the end of the day – Philly was going to take Embiid no matter what. The only real candidate that they had outside of Embiid was Dante Exum, you know, the international man of mystery at the time from Australia. There was the Brett Brown connection where Brett had coached his father Cecil, and there was a lot of pressure in the organization to take him because he just was young and talented. And MCW, as much as he was the rookie of the year, like wasn't a real point guard necessarily with the shooting and all that. But they brought in Dante. For a secret private workout, and they handed his agent, Rob Polinka at the time, a list of all these second-round undrafted type guys to go one-on-one with, which, right, is unheard of. Like, we never, ever hear of top guys doing that, but sure enough, they got Tim Frazier into PCOM, and Dante and Tim went one-on-one. And you know, top five pick versus an undrafted guy—it's supposed to be a blowout, right? But and it was. But Tim Frazier kicked the shit out of Dante Axum. Just worked him like a senior oh, yeah. in high school beating a freshman that came up for varsity practice. And um, right, right then and there, a lot of people around the around the team told me that that immediately took Dante out of the out of the equation, and um, they weren't even considering him at number ten. Later on, actually, I really think so. Um, and Embiid just by all, I mean, he, he was always going to be the guy, but that, that, that Frazier workout really cemented it, that Joel was going to be their number, their number three pick.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it's interesting. Cause there's, there's been a lot of misreporting on um, the Sixers and them, you know, I think at one point, certainly I think Brett Brown uh, thought they were getting Wiggins. Uh, and certainly, I mean, I think the team probably thought they were getting Wiggins at three because they didn't expect Joel Embiid to fall.
1: Yeah, before he got hurt too. Before he got hurt, you know. They they really thought it was gonna go and beat Parker Wiggins because oh, even 100%. before Wiggins was going one, the Bucks wanted Parker over Wiggins because he's from Chicago. And again, the playoffs. Like Wiggins had a greater long term ceiling, they thought, but Jabari was the finished product. So yeah. they would have definitely gotten Wiggins if Embiid went one. I'm pretty I'm pretty confident in that.
2: That, yeah. that, no, that I, is unbelievable. I, I so. Like the Bucks would win ten championships in a row if they yeah. didn't have that stupid calculus about a guy from Chicago and thinking he's better than Giannis and all this stuff. It's well, and, and making the playoffs the next year. My
0: that, God. That's why I love the draft, right? Cause you can have a forward thinking organization. That gets a lot of credit for drafting Giannis where they did. And they deserve a lot of credit for drafting Giannis where they did. And also they thought Jabari Parker was a better addition to their team than, than even a, an injured Joel Embiid, And you could have had a, a like you said, a, a dynasty, an unstoppable dynasty by one decision. Um, and they, Chose that sort of short-term playoff push, and a misevaluation of Parker, and that got in the way of it. But yeah, going back, funny to,
1: thing to just not to cut it up, but to, the context with Milwaukee too. Remember, a couple of years later, they they surprised everybody and took a long-term project
0: in Thon Maker at number ten. So they yeah. they were clearly all across the board. Yeah, um, but it's it's good to bring up the trading up the one because I've seen some people report that they were talking with uh, Cleveland to trade up the one for Wiggins. Absolutely not the case. Uh, Joel Embiid, I mean, Joel Embiid was number one on almost all teams boards um, before he got injured. But from what I've been told, even after the injury, he if the Sixers had the number one pick, I truly believe they would have taken Embiid, even injured, even with the foot. I agree. But there's just no reason to trade up the one after the injury because they were pretty confident he was going to fall. The trading down to five was interesting. Um, and, 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 you know, um, would have been a little like you can say before the draft or coming into the draft. All right. Orlando's not going to take him. I think it was Utah who they would have traded uh, up to from five. They're not going to take him, but boy, that could have been risky. Um, that yeah. I think is Sam getting a tiny bit too cute, uh, but it is interesting that they were so confident that he would have lasted the five and they were so locked in on Embiid that they yeah. were willing to entertain it. I don't think I wrote
1: this in the book, but I think part of the traction of getting 23 was I definitely wrote this in the book. They were trying to trade up to eat with Sacramento. And I think it was by all accounts to try to get Nick Staskus and maybe that 23 pick would have been extra ammunition to move up from 10 because but I don't know what their offer was to Sacramento, but whatever their offer was to get from 8 up to 10, the Kings said no. So maybe that 23 pick would have been extra ammo uh, to get
0: Nick at number 8. Well, they end up getting the better player at 10 anyway.
1: I,
2: I think you're right about that, Jake, because we actually – got inside the King's war room with that Grantland documentary that year. And there, there is a mention, I believe, I, I haven't watched that in a while. It's still one of my favorite videos of all time.
0: For me, um, Stauskas.
2: But I, I do remember, I think it was Pete DeLisandro going to Vivek, like Philly is trying to trade up for the pick and, yes. you know, whether it was like seconds or whatever. And Vivek was like, no way, we're not doing that. We're taking, what was it? we're taking Stauskas. There's, <laughs> a lot, there's, a <laughs> lot, there's a lot players of like stuff. i oh, sorry. Yes. yes,
1: exactly. There's a, there's a lot there's a lot of Sacramento in the book. I mean, this is a good opportunity to kind of just give them a selling point pitch. It's not just Philly. I mean, I, I cover a lot of different teams to kind of show that there's different styles of doing this, right? Like Boston moved on before it was too soon. I wrote before it was too late with KG and Paul Pierce. Orlando did the same thing with Dwight. Um, but the Lakers you know, tried to hold on to Kobe as long as possible instead of maybe moving on from him, and they still ended up kind of tanking. The Kings are kind of uh, uh, you know, the worst-case example of they were never bad enough to get into that top tier, but they weren't good enough to get into the playoffs, and they just were on this treadmill of mediocrity forever, and they were definitely considering – I mean, they also were behind everybody else analytically, um, they didn't really have a whole analytics staff and a database and whatnot. Like they brought in the whole draft 3.0, these like guys off the street pretty much off Twitter. Um, they were definitely between Alfred Peyton and Nick staskus So they, def- they they wanted staskus at the end of the day. Obviously, they took him over Peyton, but um it, it's it's interesting that everyone has different varying ideas in the same exact draft of who's better and who's not. Um and they, they were they really wanted staskus For certain reasons, his ability to shoot off the jump or or shoot off the dribble—excuse me—and the other things, Um, the coaching staff wanted Alfred Payton defensively. They really thought they needed to improve defensively in order to compete for the postseason at a certain point. But you're right, Vivek was the driving force for Nick. He was just like enamored by his shooting, and there was like some fact that Nick said he could shoot 99 of 100 free throws just in his backyard and Vivek would always tell people in the organization, like he can shoot nine, nine out of a hundred free throws. It's like really, really interesting to see how owners get so involved in certain situations.
0: Yeah. Um, wrapping up the, uh, the, well, like uh, wrapping up the 2014 draft, uh, you had some information there about Sharch uh, and that they had actually promised uh, his was agent or his father. I think his agent, right? I think, I think everybody. Yeah. Yeah, they had promised that if if he was there, they would take him, and then they took ended up taking Pel, uh, Alfred Payton. So,
1: mm-hmm. I guess, just
0: walk us through how everything went on there.
1: Yeah, I think they were casting a really wide net at ten. Like they even brought in Yusuf Nurkic at one point, and like he blew them away. But they thought it was a little bit too risky, maybe, because um, of his weight issues at the time. Sharj at the time was someone that everyone kind of loved. Like he was, you know. He was he was what he is. He was a hustler, a guy with energy and, and um, just he was a, he was overwhelmingly a Bret Brown type of guy, like leave it all out on the floor, and um, he really reminded everyone of the organization like Boris Diaw. But um, you're right, they they he Dario was sitting in Barclays number ten comes around, he's ready to go, and they hear Alfred Payton's name get called, and he's freaking out. Alfred Payton is excited, but remember, Michael Carter-Williams was there on the floor for <laughs> ESPN, and he's like, oh, I don't know what's happening. The the, the ESPN broadcast on the Jumbotron pan to his face, and he looks like he's seen his own ghost. And they, they take this picture together, remember, and Alfred's all smiling, but Michael's like, I, I don't know what's happening here. And, you know, depending on who you talk to, you know, Sam definitely had inside information from Orlando that they wanted Alfred Payton and obviously they had um, a hold of one of Philly's future picks from that Dwight Howard four-team deal that brought <clears throat> Andrew Bynum to the situation. And uh, he wanted to get that pick back. And he knew they wanted Alfred, and he kind of ho- he held him hostage. You know, people still say to this day that they thought Alfred would have been you know just a guy that would have been good to have in your program regardless. But they took him fully expecting Dario to be available at twelve. And they knew that Orlando wanted Elfrin and they knew that they would be able to uh, extract him from Orlando and get an extra pick out of the process, too. So it was a pretty ballsy move and it paid off for Sam.
0: Yeah, definitely. What a, a uh,
2: What a masterpiece uh, that draft is. My God. I mean, yeah. he he certainly had his hits and misses at the top of the draft. That was pretty flawless.
0: Well, it, it to me it's always because I, like I hear a lot of people say, well, they got they got lucky, uh, they didn't even want Embiid, he fell to three. Well, that's not true. They didn't want Embiid, and something I've said in the past, and certainly reporting here, is more detailed than than anything we've seen. They were locked in on Embiid, but they were very lucky that he fell to three because they they were never going to be able to trade up the number one. If if Embiid doesn't get hurt, never Cleveland is not trading that pick. Um, at least not not for another draft prospect. Maybe they will to entice LeBron James, but not for another draft prospect. So they are lucky that he got injured and fell to three, but they were very much like that to me is a, a clear delineation of priorities uh, and and showing which teams I think had their eye on what mattered uh, when you compare what the Bucks did versus what the Sixers did. And there's Sixers were never passing on, on Joe. I don't believe they would have. And and your reporting, I think certainly suggests that. Yeah. So it is an interesting draft for sure. The next draft, not quite as interesting, Uh, not quite (laughs) as much of a hit. So I guess, just the overall sense of the team, where they were at, what sort of like the, I hate to use this word because it's become the word of the year, but the vibe of the team and how everything <laughs> was going on and how that influenced the uh, the selection that you think. Well, of, of Okafor, of course, I'm talking about.
1: Yes. Well, we have to think, there's a lot of context to play here. Obviously, you know, Nerland sat out that first year, MCW rises to the rookie of the year. And um, they're supposed to have this blueprint of Nurland's MCW and Embiid, right? That you know PR campaign they put out to season ticket holders—the blueprint to success. Then they trade MCW at the trade deadline, and it caused a whole uproar amongst a lot of people in the organization and the fan base too. And when Embiid gets hurt again right before the 2015 draft, there was starting the this, this sense of pressure. I think that ultimately ended up pushing Sam out, the door was starting to get felt, I think, by a lot of people in the organization. And, um, you know, Jaleel Okafor was the number one guy all that year long until same thing as Embiid, kind of around January, February, Carl Anthony Towns kind of emerged as the number one pick. But even still, everyone thought Jaleel was just right there, probably going to go number two. And the Lakers thought so. They brought Ja in for two workouts um, they also brought in D'Angelo and Christoph Rzingis and a- Emmanuel Moutier. Um, and, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned Christophs to say that I think Philly was really intrigued by him. But Andy Miller, who represented New Orleans, who New Orleans had had a whole interesting whole rookie year there where he wasn't showing up on time for medical evaluations. He was late to the team plane taking off. Um, you know, they considered... Hiring like a full-time babysitter, honestly, for Nerlens, that whole situation um, wasn't the same degree with Joel. He wasn't nearly as much of a malcontent as Nerlens at his rookie year. But I mean, his brother died, and he was, you know, considered like an outcast on the team. Uh, this like training room sideshow, of trying to keep his weight under under wraps and whatnot. And I think when Joel broke his foot again, they really started to feel the pressure on. You know the the longest view in the room was what I, was what everyone you know really had their calling card and, and and really you know was proud of to be a part of. But I think the pressure started to sink in. Then they couldn't take Porzingis. Andy Miller never let Sam Hankey talk to him when they when they had their workout in Las Vegas. He made ASM staffers that their their agency at the time like. He basically sent a message to everyone in the agency: Do not let Hanky talk to Porzingis. They wouldn't let him work out in Philly. They scheduled a lunch meeting at one point in New York for Hanky to meet Porzingis. And as Hinky was driving up, Miller said, "Like, oh, he's got food poisoning. Don't come." And just like with Utah or Orlando, not really being able to take bead without having his medical records, Porzingis was this, you know, un- unheard of seven foot two, three, whatever. Lithuanian prospect who, not Lithuanian, Latvian prospect, excuse me, who, you know, they wanted to see if his body would hold up, and there was just no way ownership was going to be able to, to approve take, taking him without any access to him at all. So at that point in time, they they did want D'Angelo, but he went number two to the Lakers. They were considering Emmanuel Mudiay, but they they ended up taking Ja. I think for multiple reasons. I think it was kind of in beat insurance number one, like. He got hurt a week or whatever before the draft and potentially was never going to play. Like that was a real, real concern for a lot of people in the organization. And they viewed Jaw as a potential um band-aid for that situation. And the other worst-case scenario was Jaw was considered the number one prospect forever, right? They thought he was at least going to have maximum trade value of any guy available there. But sure enough, you know, the whole Boston situation rears this ugly head that November, right around Thanksgiving. And um, you know, the the ending of the of the process era kind of uh, start started from there.
2: So so let's you know let's compare what you know about the Sixers and all the reporting you did with the other teams. I, I guess you know it's this is kind of a broader question. You could take it a bunch of different ways. What do you view as the pluses and minuses of what the Sixers did? Kind of scorched earth, yeah, young guys. Um, You know, making no mistake about trying to be the worst team versus some of the like soft tanks, you know, like you talked about, you know, the Kings just not kind of almost being in tanking no man's land, other teams mm-hmm. like that. What, what do you think the pluses and minuses of the Sixers compared to some of those other strategies were?
1: Go to the 2015 trade deadline again, when Philly moves on from MCW. Boston, they're trading for Isaiah Thomas and they make the playoffs. And that, that's their, I think that's the most traditional tank. Like Utah did it in 2014, too. They tanked one year um, and they got XM. XM obviously didn't become the guy, but, you know, then they started making their way back to the playoff picture. And with Boston, they were able to start collecting talent and eventually put themselves in the position to sign Gordon Hayward and Al Horford in free agency. And they got to the conference finals, you know, quicker than Philly did but the other benefit to what Philly did is they have more staying power right now ostensibly right like they built it more organically um more more uh patiently and 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 i think one thing that was important to characterize what sam's strategy was was they never had this hubris that they were going to draft better than everybody else the draft is a very un like unpredictable science and you never know what's going to happen with cleveland and milwaukee ahead of you you never know what's going to happen with Minnesota and the Lakers ahead of you. Like I really think if the Lakers take Jalil Okafor, um, you know, D'Angelo Russell's the point guard of the future in Philly and who knows how that would have turned out. Um, so there's all these unexpected variables that that come into play. And I think what Sam's strategy was it, was, it was designed to mitigate as many of those unforeseen variables as possible. And I mean, a beads injury is a perfect example, right? Like, he missed his first two years, and no, sure enough, here he is now. But the other thing I think is important to talk about here is that if Joel doesn't get hurt or get hurt his second year after after they drafted him, I don't think the process would have been – I don't think they would have won 10 games only in 15-16. I don't think the plan was to be as bad as they were for as long as they were because they were hiring people like Chris Babcock who had – and uh, Todd Wright who had connections to Kevin Durant from Texas – And they had and Lloyd Pierce had a connection with LeBron and Kyle Lowry had a big connection with Billy Lane, the assistant they hired from Villanova. Like Sam was doing sneaky things like that to set Philly up to be in the conversation for free agents starting in 2016. So I don't think they were really intentionally going to do what they did for the first three seasons of Sam's. I mean, the only three seasons of of Sam's tenure, Um I think it's just the circumstances that came to play led them to being bad for that long, but that's also how it was designed, right? They had the opportunity to have that long view.
2: Yeah, outside of the Oakford pick, I, I think one of the things that the Sixers did well, I guess, or you know, whether you want to say they did well, it definitely worked out in the long term, is that they didn't, once something started to go wrong, they didn't take any shortcuts they said, we're going to take our medicine for another year. And, and, you know, it really set them up to a place where they could mess up a decent amount of stuff and still have that staying power you talked about. Yeah. The D'Angelo Russell thing, that would have been, uh that would have been interesting. Um, You know, it would have probably given the Sixers a better fit. I'm not sure it would have given them like that much better of a player, but uh, certainly probably would have worked out better than then okafor did and also swaggy p might still be in a relationship too <laughs> yeah
1: the the um, andrew russell thing was really interesting because his mentality and his maturity was really a factor that everyone was thinking of yeah especially in la like, how would that and, have happened
2: in philly too like he had he had kobe on that team right in la mm-hmm. when it yeah. started not to say you know but but like look that's that's still different than what the Sixers were dealing with, you know, having to bring in Elton Brand, you know, at the, the midpoint of the season just to get an adult in the room.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, the Elton Brand situation is really interesting. Um, and you know, the, the Duke ties to Sam, the Duke theme throughout Sam's demise, I think is really fascinating too, with, and we can get into this if you well, want. I, a I, I think that's
0: interesting that you brought up Cause that's something I'd uncovered during, um, some of my research on, on my book, which you, uh, there's a strong <laughs> suspicion that uh, Coach K was was at least involved in urging Adam Silver to uh, look yeah. at the Philly situation. You've heard which, that, too? Uh, I, I heard that, too, which is great yeah. to see, um, you know, cross-reference a bit between our books, and great to see that uh, <laughs> it was confirmed, and, and you've done more reporting on it. So it is interesting, the Duke connection, uh, because that came through a lot in the latter stages of Sam's tenure, for sure. It,
1: it did. I mean, Adam Silver's college roommate at Duke is a partner or, or someone at Apollo Global where Joshua Harris obviously comes from. And, you know, Del Elton Brand is a Duke guy. Joel Okafor is a Duke guy. Jerry Colangelo was the USA basketball chairman who Mike Krzyzewski was the coach for at the time. So a lot of these things that end up coming to light later on, like the connections are pretty obvious when you really spell them out.
0: Yeah, there was, uh, I don't think anybody had any real proof, but there was certainly a sneaking suspicion that, that there was involvement there. Yeah. Um I guess well, one thing that uh I'll go here and then pivot towards an uh, an end question. Um the hanky specials and how much that became a point of contention yeah. with agents. I guess first of all um you know what was a lot of there cuz it's not like other teams weren't offering things but there was a a key aspect that Sixers weren't offering that other teams were in those four year deals. But what was the point of contention? And then also I one of the interesting things I thought was Christian Wood that they yeah. had offered him a four year deal and it sounded like he was agreeable to it and then that fell apart so i guess first overall hinky special and then also what happened with christian wood and sam's relationship with him and and possibly bringing him back the
1: well, first thing i want to say about the hinky special that i think's kind of gotten lost to history is with that and the 10 day contracts i don't think sam gets enough credit for giving a lot of players an opportunity to make the nba that wouldn't have gotten it otherwise like we talked about tim Frazier at the top I mean, he was in the D-League. He was the MVP of the D-League, I think, I'm pretty sure. At least he was an all-star that 13-14 season before he came into Philly, and then he signed with Portland, and he's still kicking around. I mean, guys like Robert Covington, T.J. McConnell, um, I mean, he gave everyone – I mean, from Darius Johnson Odom to Jarvis Farnado to Daniel Orton, he gave a lot of guys opportunities. Um, But the point of contention was that Sam was selling that opportunity as a means to not pay those guys very much. And very much, I mean, for T.J. McConnell to get, you know, a $800,000 salary out of school, pretty incredible. But that ultimately locks you into a deal, and there's no flexibility at all. And at the same point in time, when LeBron went back to Cleveland, and that has its ripple effects throughout the tanking time period that we're talking about, obviously, Cleveland was picking one at at the top of the draft, like we've discussed. And that was really – LeBron possibly even entertaining going back to Cleveland was definitely on their minds, the whole draft process. But also when LeBron went back um, to uh, Akron for his offseason, for for his meetings he was taking with players – or with agents and and teams, um, Rich, Rich Paul told everybody, like, he's taking his max. Like, the Heat guys had all taken a little bit less to play together and, you know, whatever. But LeBron realized, like, if I'm not taking my max salary, how can anybody else take their max salary? So that became a big push throughout the agenting world and the union. Like, everyone started to say, on the flip side of this, the Hanky special is literally lowering the bar and lowering the competitive, you know, balance. I guess, for the lack of a better expression, for all agents out there, Jeremy Grant was on the record in the book saying it's an awful deal. Like you can out, like pretty much everybody who is going to make it to that fourth year of the non guaranteed deal, like you're gonna, you're going to automatically have outplayed it because you're still sticking around the NBA and you were not really even going to have an opportunity. And the players union in 2015 actually every summer the union has agent meetings where they kind of address things they want to talk about and change or whatever. They were telling agents, do not sign this contract. It is terrible for our marketplace. It is terrible for our union. It pushes guys to take less money and get locked into bad deals. But for someone like TJ, it's attractive for someone like, Christian Wood, it might have been attractive, but here right. he He did ultimately spurn that at a certain point because they thought he could have gotten more at a certain point. Robert Covington didn't take it. He was going to take, or Hanke called his agent in the 2013 draft in the second round and said, if we draft you, will you be open to this deal? And they said no.
0: And that was and, pretty high, right? I think that was the 35th pick, you said. 35th pick, yeah. So, crazy. I crazy. I knew, I knew he was interested in Covington as an undrafted. I didn't realize he almost got drafted that high, though.
1: Yeah, and the only reason they didn't draft him was because they knew Covington wasn't going to take that contract. So it was pretty perilous. There were, I see both sides of it. Um, Dwayne Dednan, remember, he was someone that came in into that season, and Brett Brown was really a big fan of him and wanted him to be around for a while. And Hinkie wouldn't budge off of his deal, and his agent Mike Silverman was like, "Dude, we're gonna get more guaranteed money from somebody." Like he, Silverman said, he respected you for like resting on his laurels and being a staunch negotiator but he was never backing off of it and it, it drove a lot of people nuts
0: yeah interesting um because if they could have just well i mean to be honest Christian wood wasn't ready to be a an nba productive player at he was like I, I think he needed some time to bounce around to get to where he was but that would have been interesting if they could have kept him around uh, interesting that they had that much interest in him too uh, because they had brought him in for a pair of 10 days and you, you thought well boy they missed the talent um yeah but it sounds like they had had pretty legitimate interest well so he guess, also
1: had a not to interrupt you he also had an interesting overlap with joel or not joel jo, uh john ja boston, boston right he yeah, was yep. he was right then and there in the middle of that
0: whole thing <laughs> yeah
2: thanksgiving morning yeah
0: fun times um all right so i guess let's just wrap this up with a sort of general, you know, where do you think Hinky could have made the biggest change that would have prevented what ended up happening, happening? What, What was his sort of like fatal flaw? What was his thing that he needed to fix in order to maintain power?
1: I think on the ground and behind the scenes that aggressive negotiating style that we just talked about and how he, you know, wasn't very personable with certain guys like Evan Turner and Spencer Hawes and Thad like we've talked about rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. I mean, the Andre Karolinko situation in 2015 was honestly, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Sam's, but learning about that situation kind of made me have a gut check about his his strategy at a certain point. I mean, Karolinko had a, a a wife, his wife was having a really awful pregnancy situation. And they were in Brooklyn um, when she had this whole relationship with these doctors that were like, she was basically like on her deathbed and on her pregnancy bed at the same time. And fortunately she survived and it all worked out, but they were like demanding Andre come to Philly and report when he had no interest in being there. He just wanted to be, he didn't want to move his wife and amid all of that. And they were finding him to get there. Like that really rubbed a lot of people the wrong way too. When, when they traded for Karolinko Sam had told Billy King, who was the GM in Brooklyn at the time, that they were just going to waive him. So stuff like that behind the scenes definitely um, encouraged what was happening or encouraged the outrage from what was happening publicly where he wasn't talking to the media. And you guys know it as well as I do that Sam was really willing to talk off the record. He's a really charming, personable, funny guy, I think. But the local media wasn't doing that. And I I do agree – to a certain extent, that if you're not going to talk on the record, what, what is the value of talking to you? But, I mean, if you're trying to build relationships with sources, that's one thing. If you're trying to actually cover the team, that's another. Um, but, I mean, the Jalil situation is a perfect example of this. Like, he got in that Boston fight. He played, and he played. And the league office is sitting there like, what are you doing? How is this guy popping up on TMZ? And then, you know, the Inquirer and Comcast Sportsnet and whoever are reporting all these other traffic violations and (laughs) some guy pointing a gun at him through the window, and the team is doing nothing. Finally, when they do suspend him, it's Brett Brown talking about it before a pregame at Madison Square Garden where Sam is at the game but refusing to talk to reporters. Like, that is publicly – what I think ultimately pushed him out of the door, but it was like the top of the surface, right? Like all that stuff I just talked about behind the scenes was kind of coloring that perspective um, as well. So I think looking back on it, he also definitely does recognize that those were his shortcomings. He probably could have been a bit more transparent. He only spoke after the draft and after the trade deadline, right? Like we don't see, I mean, Daryl's on Twitter left and right and other GMs go on radio shows and, shake hands and kiss babies uh, pre-game and post-game and whatnot. Sam wasn't going to do any of that because he thought it was you know, a competitive disadvantage. He wanted to hold all his cards close to his chest. But at the same time, you kind of have to sacrifice some competitive advantages, I think, to just create um, a good personality, um, reputation, and relationships around the league because the NBA is a workplace at the end of the day and you got to work with these guys, these agents, these other rival executives time and time again and that was something that I think he really did struggle with.
2: Yeah. I think that's that's a good way to uh to sum it up. Uh while we have you here, um can we do 5 minutes on that Pacers piece you wrote the other day? Uh yeah, I there's some things I won't say but yeah, let's do it. I I guess just what, you know, I mean, it's just been the story of the NBA this week. I think, with you know, there being rumblings about Nate Bjorken not, um, you know, communicating as much with uh, with their their players, and then there's the crazy thing this week. I mean, the timing was insane where they have this on court blow up that goes viral yeah. with Greg Foster, former Sixers assistant Greg Foster, and mm-hmm. uh, and Goga, um, so. You know, yeah. You know, whatever you can say. Um, you know, you you have a very detailed piece at Bleacher Report <laughs> about the the things that kind of you know the the lack of communication and where that's kind of gone wrong. Um, I, I I guess just what did you learn from the reporting of that piece?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, back in February, even and especially around the deadline, words started popping up that it just wasn't going well, and that very few players were still behind him um, and that there was just a lot of turmoil based off of his communication style. And I started reporting on it quietly the last couple of weeks. Um, and when Woj broke the news on Tuesday, um, it was like, all right, this is good time to get these details out, especially because the details weren't coming out. Right. Like I thought it was fair to the Pacers fan base. I mean, as cliche and corny as it is to say, like, when reporting is coming out that your head coach, your first year head coach is likely going to be fired because of his abrasive communication style that has put off players and coaches. Like I think it's only fair for that fan base to get some examples of that. Right. So, um, you know, I, I worked the phones. I talked to over 15 people for that story, three people in the Pacers organization. And it just, sounds like this is the way that Nate Bjorkren has operated dating back to his G League time. I mean, I only quoted one uh, of his former G League players. And I know um, a certain coach in Toronto called out the reporting because they were all anonymous quotes. But I mean, to talk about a, a person's personality and his job security, I mean, no one's really going to attach their name to that, right? Like You kind of have to grant anonymity due to the sensitivity of that. Um, but I talked to a former G league player who I trust and I've known for a long time. And even after the story went out, I mean, I had literally over a dozen people on the league text me saying, yeah, I've heard similar things about that guy. And I also, I saved a lot of details that were even worse to be fully candid to protect the people involved. Even as, even though I did kind of put them on blast, you know, I did save a lot of more inflammatory quotes and information, uh, it's not, you know, I knew that story was going to be explosive. I, I wanted it to be, you know, a Category 4 hurricane, not a Category 5, if you will. So um, it's unfortunate. Like, honestly, I feel bad for everyone involved. Um, I, I I always say, like, I want everyone in the NBA to be successful. And the fact that they aren't in a situation right now and they did hire Nate to have them – be A Nick Nurse type and push them from being, you know, a good playoff team to a contender, and it had the exact opposite effect, and they might fall out of the play-in tournament altogether. Um, it's unfortunate, and I, I, I just think those details needed to come to light. Someone was going to report them at some point. Um, and I had a beat on it for a couple of weeks, so it, it, the go thing also just kind of I mean, I'd heard that Greg Foster was, you know, of, and this is another example. And I, I wrote that Greg Foster was. A coach that was still around that was starting to get the most frustrated I, all i'll say is the behavior that he exhibited towards goga i think has been behavior that has been exhibited towards him if you catch my drift
2: yeah and it's you know it, it just goes to show that as much as coaching you know we people freak out about rotations and you know uh end of game play calls and things like that. A lot of it is just like, can you manage the personalities? And that's, you know, I think a lot of coaches would tell you that's like 90% of the, uh, of the job. And I, I just thought, you know, that great report, obviously, but they, um, th- the part that, that I thought hit home to me the most was that like the Pacers did not do quite as much research on that part with Nate Bjorkman, you know, in looking for a Nick nurse type. Well, Nick nurse, the Raptors knew who Nick nurse was as a person because he had been their assistant coach for multiple years at that point. Um, so, you know, that's 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 cautionary tale.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's also why I felt I could write it. And I felt I would be able to write it. Is that like, it was widespread. Like everyone in the NBA has been talking about this for a while and it's just so well known. And it was well known beforehand, like Phoenix situation and the G league situation. Um, it's something that I'm a little surprised. I mean, then again, like I wrote in the story, you know, he was very positive and super energetic, and by all accounts, like in training camp and in after they had that hot start, like people were drinking the Kool Aid and buying in. But then, you're right, like his his real personality shown through. And I think what I tell people all the time who ask me like what it's like covering the NBA, I always tell them like basketball is very little of the equation in the NBA. Like sure, it's everything, but it's also kind of very very small when you think of the what the factors that drive coaching changes and trades and whatever. It's all it's a workplace and it's an ecosystem and its personalities blending together. I mean, that's why Ben and Joel's relationship has been such a talking point You know for how long it's been. And um, I think the NBA is this huge behemoth that between 48 and 0 on the clock, that is 1% of what happens. Um, the actual games are very, very, very little of – you know the whole iceberg of what it, you know goes on behind the scenes in organizations
0: and it provides a a nice parallel to Hankey's extended uh coaching search in 2013 and how they ended up with Brett Brown yeah exactly i mean he wanted
1: somebody that could be a partner and a teacher and a nurturer i mean i teased it at the top but there's this really awesome anecdote in the book about um, Del Demps, you know, the former Pelicans GM who actually made the trade with Sam uh, for New Orleans and Drew. Um, he was a Spurs exec at the time. And the Spurs had a lap pool in their practice facility because Tim Duncan loved to swim. And, you know, a great form of cardio exercise, right? And one day Brett was walking through and he saw Dell kind of like doggy paddling and floundering in the water. And Brett was like, <laughs> you don't know how to swim, man. And Dell was like, yeah, I do. He was like, nah, I'm going to meet you here tomorrow. And I'm going to teach you how to swim. And, like, for weeks, Brett would come in early, and before practice, they would get in the pool wearing, you know, their Spurs practice, you know, T-shirts and shorts, and Brett taught him how to swim. And, like, even though <laughs> Greg Popovich and R.C. Buford and Tim Duncan were coming in, making fun of him, that's the kind of teacher and, you know, nurturer that Brett is. And I thought that, is, that example was just, like, a perfect example of the kind of guy that Sam knew he was going to get. And, obviously – you know, Brett's tenure kinda of came to a close in Philly because he never really had I never really exhibited the ability to turn all that into, you know, true pro season success. Um, but I mean he did a lot in Philly and helped grow those guys and put them in the position to be in there are now. And I think uh it's unfortunate how his tenure ended, but I think his
0: fingerprints on that franchise are also kind of indelible too. So I uh, I I lied, I have one more question. Maybe yeah. two. So the first, um, you have an anecdote in there where early on in Brett's tenure, they're trying to get them not only to run more in transition, but a lot of early offense drills where they're, you know, basically have an eight or a 10 second shot clock to try to encourage, um, you know, early actions in their plays. And Brett used to yell out butter because it was like the shot clock melting away. Yes. When you're, you were being told that story, did any player or coach, try to imitate Brett's, Brett's accent while telling you that story. And were any of them even close to nailing it? You know
1: who was pretty good at impersonating it was Manny Ginobili. Um okay. which I mean someone gave me Manu's number and I called it and I was like, there's no way he's gonna answer. It's Manny Ginobili. Who like who where is he in the world right now, right? Like he might be in Italy, he might be in Argentina. Sure enough I called him up and he just answered and we have like a great twenty five minute conversation about Brett and they were really close. Um, from Brett's, you know, international experience, and and obviously Manu's background, and and he called it his Australian accent, and he definitely gave me a really good
0: impersonation. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh what I would give for that tape. That's great. Uh, yeah, I could I just it like imagining Brett running down the court yelling "butter." It, it just cracked me up while it yeah. uh it. Yeah. The other one, so a, a part of the book, obviously, was in 2016 <laughs> when uh, they were going through the whole front office reorg. Did you get any real sense? you know, you reported that he was working, uh, you know, talking that Hinky was talking to Danny Ferry to, um, potentially go over what a power structure would look like. Mm -hmm. Did you get any sense that that could have actually come to pass? Or was that just early stages? This is better than, than teaming up with Brian, obviously, but do you think there was any chance that could have actually worked out?
1: I think with Danny, it might have been able to work out because of the Brett Brown connection. They'd been with San Antonio and Brett, by all accounts, I mean, I'm sure, Derek, you can attest to this too, Rich, too, that he, him and Sam really were partners. Like, as much as they would ever disagree on certain things, you know, like trading and MCW would, or like whatever. The, yeah. The point guard situation definitely annoyed Brett. Especially 15-16 with the whole Tony Rote and Kendall Marshall thing. Um, but they were partners and they believed in each other, I think. And um, Brett really wanted it to work out with Sam. And that's why he was really pushing for Danny because they they knew each other from you know the San Antonio days, like I said, um, and and maybe Danny would have been able um, to have done it because he's not, you know, the type of bombastic, I'm a relationship type guy that the Colangelo's are. But I mean, never really ha- got a chance to get off the ground once you know the whole Luau Deng situation really came into be a factor. Um, I, I from from what I was told, it sounds like it's. I was pretty surprised how late in the picture. The, the Luol Deng situation came into um, those conversations in Philly. Yeah. Um, like it seemed like they didn't really talk about it until the 11th hour. Um, the, I mean, but also, I mean, Sam came in with the idea that he had a direct path to ownership and they empowered him to do as he pleased. And as he thought would push the team towards the ultimate one day goal of competing year after year after year. And I think any notion opposite of that was kind of untenable moving forward, especially with someone who was Jerry's son. And any situation where it was Jerry versus Sam, there would have been a third vote and it wouldn't have gone Sam's way, obviously. Um, and, you know, talk to anybody around the league. Sure. There are co- there are GMs and assistant GMs or presidents and general managers who have worked together forever, like Danny Ainge and Mike Zarin or, um, you know, Gerson Rosas was Daryl's guy after Sam left for a long time. Calvin Booth and Tim Connolly are doing great things together in Denver, um, but there isn't a co-GM situation like that's virtually unheard of. It's never ever happened. And you put that into a fa- into the equation where Sam was the guy, and maybe even had more, you know, solo power than any GM at the time, and had all this carte blanche to just do as he chose and, and trade MCW, trade for JaVale McGee and take on that contract and then cut him a day after. Um, I don't think it was tenable and I think Philly knew that as well. Like I don't think ownership really I mean, they say they wanted to work around. Him. I'm sure they did because they did trust Sam. Um they did think he was brilliant, but I also think they knew he wouldn't have loved that situation. Um and I think that's also why Sam isn't back in the league. I think he realized that even when an ownership group tells oh, you, I don't,
0: yeah, like, I don't think he would ever trust an ownership group again.
1: Exactly, I think there are very rare circumstances where you know, Danny, Agent Boston, or Pat Riley in Miami, or RCB Ford in San Antonio, I think very, very rarely do um, owners and, and their top executives has such has such have such a
0: trusting relationship, and uh, I think that's the ultimate factor why he won't be back. I agree. All right. That sounds like a good place to cut it off. Thank you so much for your, for your time. I wasn't didn't expect this to necessarily be an hour. I'm sorry for wasting it. I um, did but go <laughs> buy the, buy the book, uh, built to lose, uh, how the NBA's tanking era changed the league forever. Go meet Jake during one of his book signings. If you can. Uh, and it was, uh, it was great. And, and once again, just one more time, where are you going to be on Monday? Liberty Grounds,
1: I I don't remember exactly where it is in the city, Um, but 4 to 6 p.m., brand new bar. A buddy of mine from high school, Um, they're opening it up just for us. They close on Mondays, so it'll be very, very spaced. Um, And the other thing, if people send me the receipt of the book, um, I've got a bunch of old signed jerseys that I'm raffling off. I've got a sign Moses Malone and a sign No Cheeks and a sign Andre Godala, and I have like funny Chachi's like an Eric snow snow globe and a Charles Barkley duckly, uh rubber ducky. And so I have a funny Jaleel <laughs> Okafor bobblehead. So send me your receipt. And I, uh, I be wrote in the a mix. story
0: about the Eric snow snow globe. Not too long ago. Did you I, really? I you have one. I did. Well, I, I, I mentioned it in a story. Yeah. So I,
1: okay. I, I, I have no idea where it came from. I just had it in my, <laughs> I, I went home around Thanksgiving to pack up my parents' house. They're moving my childhood home. And I just like, raided my old closet and took all this crap I, I and said, I can,
0: I can do, I can do something with this to promote the book. So, yeah, sounds good. I will see you. I will stop by on Monday. I'll bring in my copy. I want that thing. want that thing signed for a, for a collectible, but thank you, Jake, for jumping on and uh, best of luck. Thanks, Jake. Thank you guys.